Welcome to the Informed Discussions podcast, where we discuss the latest economic, demographic, and public policy research that is helping Utah prosper. I'm Nick Theriot, Communications Director at the Gardner Institute. Today we're discussing the recent and sudden collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank with Gardner Institute Chief Economist, Phil Dean. So let's get started. The Biden administration took emergency steps over the weekend to prevent a broader run on the banks after the sudden collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the second largest bank failure in U.S. history, followed by the collapse of New York's Signature Bank, which became the third largest bank failure in U.S. history. Over the course of a weekend, there was mounting fear and general uncertainty of what this all meant for the banking system at large and what it meant closer to home for Utahns and the local economy. So, Phil, let's start with some background and context. What is Silicon Valley Bank? What is Signature Bank? How big are they, or were, rather? And what happened last week? Yeah, so kind of interesting situation. They're both, I think, pretty uh, niche-focused banks. You think about Silicon Valley Bank, very focused on the tech sector. Um, Interestingly, both their depositor base and their customer base, which is, I think, an interesting dynamic there. And then Signature Bank, that I think impacts Utah less, but um, very tied to the crypto sector. Uh, In terms of magnitudes, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, about $210 billion roughly, uh, Signature Bank about $110 billion. Uh, and uh, late last week in uh, Silicon Valley Bank, they had a run on the bank. Essentially, they had a bunch of depositors show up all at once. One of the challenges for banks is that they have you know checking accounts or savings accounts that you can withdraw money from at any time, and they lend out money over the long term. So they're you know doing a, a five-year loan or a 10-year loan or a 30-year loan, whatever it is, uh, and they don't actually have all that cash sitting there in the bank. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, they had depositors show up on Friday and try to pull out $42 billion all at once in a single day. Uh, and that's uh, far beyond the amount of cash uh, that the bank had or that they were able to get by selling uh, securities they had, mainly U.S. Treasuries, as I understand it. Um, so they ended up being insolvent and not being able to uh, pay back the depositors that, that were continuing to flow into the bank. Uh, with that, the, uh, the federal government stepped in and uh, shut down the bank. Uh, and then over the weekend, uh, essentially guaranteed the deposits at the bank, which is a very different thing than guaranteeing that the shareholders get anything you know, of, of the bank, but did guarantee that the depositors would be made whole uh, of both of the banks, both Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Yeah. So you touched on this a little bit, but you know, how did this all happen so fast? We, we see it just happening within the course of a few days, this run on the bank you mentioned. What makes the situation unique in that you know, by Friday, folks are going in, you know, getting their money out, causing the run on the bank. By Sunday, the federal government was announcing their response. What, what, what makes the situation unique in terms of the rapid rate at which this all happened? Yeah, I think there were con- a couple of contributing factors in both of them. Uh, as we discussed, they were very niche banks. Uh, and so they kind of had were unique in, in that they had a very small clientele uh, and also uh, that, that had very big deposits. So the federal government uh, has the FDIC insurance uh, to 250000 where they guarantee that. 
in the end, they ended up guaranteeing more than that. But uh, you, in this case, you had a very large share of deposits that were not guaranteed with that 250000 per account guarantee level. Um, and, you know, other banks have a more diverse clientele. Uh, they also have uh, a higher share of deposits that, that are insured. You don't, you know, most banks don't have a really small number of people with massive, massive amounts of money. So that was the one piece. Uh, I think it's clear from the, from the media reports that social media contributed to this, right? Uh, as rumors starting uh, started to happen uh, about potential challenges, and and that kind of added on itself. And and with today's information environment, where you know that can all happen really quickly, um, that also contributed to how fast all of it came down. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned the government response, federal government. Uh, it was pretty. Pretty fast. It was seemingly pretty, a pretty rapid and immediate response. Of course, it's not without its, uh, you know, controversies. Of course, as we've seen. But what happened at the federal level over the course of the last few days to help avoid a larger crisis? What What did they do exactly to to step in? You mentioned the FDIC. Um, what What does that response look like, and how is it unfolding? Yeah, and as I understand, it's kind of a combination of the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, and the U.S. Treasury. So kind of all these different components of the federal government and then also the Federal Reserve um, that, that regulate banks that oversee uh, what happens in the banking sector uh, stepped in. And I, I think in part in response to uh, lessons learned uh, a little over a decade ago during the financial uh, crisis where it was kind of stop and start. Were they going to step in? Were they not going to step in? And, and we kind of saw how that spread in that time period. Uh, I think they learned from that and said, you know, we're going to come in and we're going to act quickly. We're going to be very decisive in, in what we do. Uh, bottom line, they guaranteed the deposits above the 250000 level for those particular banks. And then they also set up um, some tools that other banks can potentially use, uh, especially if they have high quality securities like U.S. Treasuries, uh, to maybe backstop that moving forward. Yeah. I mean, a lot of folks, of course, are asking what this means for the banking system uh, as a whole, of course, but, you know, closer to home, what it means for their own bank account. I mean, you know, even though we may not bank at these banks, folks see bank failures, see a lot of, uh, a lot of rapid uh, response, a lot of uh, kind of chaos ensuing. They wonder what it means for their own personal bottom line. There were a few comparisons, very few comparisons, of course, made to the financial crisis of 08, which you've mentioned. How does this situation differ from what we faced then? And, you know, should, should folks be looking at their own investments, their own bottom line deposits, et cetera, based on what's unfolding? Yeah. A couple of things. First, I'm not an investment advisor, so I'm not going to tell people, what, <laughs> Fair enough. people, people what they should do, but, but a couple of thoughts on, on that. Um, you know, the, the 250,000, if you have less than 250,000 sitting in the bank, which, Many of us, which is, I think most of us, I don't us. know about you, Nick, no, but I think, <laughs> I think that includes, uh, most of us, uh, but, uh, there, there is not risk, uh, and 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 just uh, there may be, you know, a bank may fail, but you don't have personal risk associated with that. Just um, in talking about the size of of these two failures, which were the second and third largest, uh, Washington Mutual was the largest, uh, a little over, I guess, about fifteen years ago or so. Um, and I happen to have uh, an account at that bank, at Washington Mutual Bank. Um, they went under, and what happened then was. Uh, we got an email at the end of the day on Friday, one weekend, saying, hey, your bank's out of business. They've been taken over. 
and um, can't remember is that email or, or a separate one saying Chase has acquired uh, these assets. Mm. So basically, nothing changed for me as a depositor, uh, other than the little logo at the top of everything I'd see now said Chase instead of Washington Mutual. Over time, they kind of merged financial systems and they had all that happen, um, but immediately there was no impact. And, and again, with with the vast majority of depositors, uh, that that's what would happen in the event any of uh, you know any additional banks face this challenge. And like I said before, the, over the last couple of days, they have developed tools and I think are continuing to look at tools for banks that, that do experience something like this. If they have, uh, if they have these high value assets like, uh, or low risk assets is maybe a better way to say it, um, that they can use those to actually get the cash that they need and, and hold uh, that insecurity against the cash to, to be able to meet a run on the bank. Right. So this all leads us to Utah. Let's talk local. Uh, what this means for our state economy, our particular our state uh, tech sector. Uh, you mentioned just how critical these institutions. Well, I mean SVP more than uh, Signature, but uh, particularly uh, uh, how critical that institution was to the tech sector. Uh, this you know, industry, of course, being uh, being one that's booming in Utah. And uh, what t- uh, first up, just walk us through, you know. What, what the tech sector looks like in Utah, just how vital it is for our economy in terms of these companies and these employees and employers, and what the outlook is as of right now, what we're seeing uh, with, with, with this news over the weekend, what it means for Utah's tech sector. Yeah. Yeah. So tech sector is certainly a, a strong part of the Utah economy. You look at uh, the growth that we've experienced uh, uh, in recent decades, and, and the tech sector is a major part of that. Um, you look at, uh, we have a report from my colleague Levi Pace that does a great job uh, walking through the tech sector. Now, um, one thing I'll say is, like, defining the tech sector is harder than it may seem. <laughs> uh, there, there are a lot of um, definitional issues to think through there. And, you know, a tech worker, is that anybody uh, working in IT? So the university's IT employees, are, are they part of the tech sector? Are we only looking specifically at tech companies down in, you know, Lehigh or, or wherever? Um, and so, you know, looking at a broad, uh, a, a fairly broad definition of that tech sector, that they account for about 15% of the jobs in the state, a uh, little under 20% of earnings, uh, about 17.5% of, of GDP, uh, with this broad definition. Uh, that said, a uh, very clearly uh, significant uh, part of the economy. Uh, but one thing I, I do want to bring up is tech is not the only sector in the U.S. in the Utah economy. Uh, here at the Gardner Institute, we use uh, a measure called the Hockman Index that that measures in industrial composition. So, meaning it compares how does our economy, how closely does it mirror the U.S. economy uh, or not mirror that? Uh, you look at uh, Utah, and we're actually one of the most diverse economies using this index, meaning we're most like the U.S. You look at our neighbor, Wyoming, very much unlike uh, the U.S. economy, very concentrated, uh, doesn't have a di- diversified economy, very concentrated uh, in the energy sector, uh, oil and gas production, a very significant portion of their economy. So uh, as much as tech is a vital part of the economy, it's also not the entire economy of Utah. Right. So to summarize, diversity in the economy, Utah, Utah's diverse economy acts as a, as a buffer or a shield when these sort of, you know, sudden circumstances arise. 
Um, Can I just jump in on that point? Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's important to think about uh, not only in the banking situation that mm-hmm. we're talking about right now, but for people in their own uh, households, for people in their businesses, just the deport, importance of diversification, Yeah. right? Uh, that it brings these benefits. Sometimes it means you don't grow as fast, but um, you can still grow fairly quickly. Um, but, but what it does mean is it adds additional resilience, right? Uh, if you have a single customer, and that customer goes away, you know, you're, you're done. You're, you're done. Um, but if you have a broad base of customers, uh, if you have here in Utah for the state, if we have a broad economy that brings, that brings these benefits to the state, um, just like it might in your own personal household portfolio. Sure. So what about regional banks with a larger presence in Utah? On Monday, we saw these small, medium-sized banks were taking a hit, uh, regional banks, rather. Uh, we saw you know, reports out of Arizona, California, including in Utah, though it does look like they're now rebounding somewhat. But what can you tell us? What what impact did this uh, news over the weekend have on, on regional banks and some of the uh, some of those that have a have a larger presence here in Utah? Yeah, it's, it's kind of this interesting uh, challenge I think we're dealing with in the banking sector of uh, during the the financial collapse, Great Recession, of you know, roughly 15 years ago, um, some banks were deemed uh, too big to fail. That that it was clear the federal government uh, was going to bail those out, and some of them did get bailed out by the federal government. Uh, so it's kind of this: um, they're in one category, and then you have you know mid-sized banks, and then you'd have smaller community banks, uh, and for both the i think mid-sized banks and and the community banks uh i think from a regulatory standpoint they're kind of in in an interesting space uh that that these really big banks have economies of scale in dealing with some of the regulatory oversight that the smaller ones don't necessarily have um uh at the same time these smaller um you know mid-sized or small banks also fill an important role uh you know maybe picking up uh, pieces of business that maybe the really big banks don't want to fill, uh, customers that aren't as profitable, maybe so they that you know they kind of leave those alone. Uh, but those people represent critical people in in, in our society, uh, in our economy, and that those are who, uh, who some of the especially the small banks uh, and mid-sized banks uh, service. So you know I think the classic example for Utah is Zion's Bank and and. As I understand it, they they have a much more diversified uh, depositor base than than these two banks did. A much more diversified uh, customer base. Uh, you know, more in the the small and middle size um, businesses, but not just a single. Um, you know, not just a single sector. Um, and you know, this is based off. I have have an account at Zion's Bank and got the email. So. Um, you know, them talking about their average depositor has a much smaller balance, uh, than, uh, the Silicon Valley bank example they're comparing it to. So I do think there are some, some meaningful differences, but one of the things for the banking sector as a whole is sometimes there is this idea of contagion, right? And, and even if the same, uh, issues don't apply, people, um, people may question what's going on. Uh, and it's, uh, I just think it's confidence is critical to what happens in the economy. And I do think it was important uh, that, that the federal government did take this role of, of uh, holding depositors har- harmless 
again, which is a different thing than holding the shareholders of the company harmless sure. or of the bank harmless. Yeah. And again, what I'm hearing, back to diversification, are our local regional banks like Zion's more diverse uh, uh, risk portfolio versus some of these uh, examples that we've seen over the weekend in terms of these failures, you know, not so diversified, larger deposits, et cetera. Um, good to know. So, Phil, how would you summarize just quickly in a couple of words or one sentence, just, you know, what the heck we saw this past weekend in terms of, you know, what, what people what people should know? What's the key takeaway here? And, and you know, a couple of words or a sentence that uh, we can end on here. Yeah, I, I think uh, confidence is key. Confidence in the financial sector is key is key. Uh, I do think it's not, sorry, it's not going to be just a phrase, but uh, <laughs> uh, I do think there's probably some work to do uh, in, in thinking about, uh, you know, uh, deposit limits. You know, you think for a business, especially a business of, of medium or large size, like a 250,000 deposit guarantee, uh, they're often moving more money than that just in meeting payroll uh, regularly. So it's, I think, an important thing to think about uh, moving forward. Like, how do we prevent this from happening again? Maybe there's additional segmentation that needs to occur uh, in accounts, you know, large accounts compared to uh, to small accounts. Um, but again, like, I, I think my bottom line takeaway, separate from the, the banking issue itself, is just the importance of consumer confidence, uh, you know, business leader confidence. Uh, in the importance of diversification in in financial matters broadly. That's great. We'll end on that. Phil, thanks so much. Thanks. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks to Phil for joining us. As always, thanks for listening to the Informed Discussions podcast from the University of Utah's Kemsey Gardner Policy Institute at the David Eccles School of Business. Mm-hmm.